0: If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. If you've ever shopped for a house or started a business, you're familiar with the saying, the three most important things to look for are location, location, location. Well, if that's significant in terms of your physical dwelling place, it's far more significant in terms of your spiritual dwelling place. In our passage this morning, chapter 12 and verses 18 to 29, the writer of Hebrews is going to contrast two locations, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And then on the basis of those two pieces of real estate, he's going to give us a warning and an exhortation. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, we have seen that the writer pauses on occasion And he gives us warnings throughout the book. Those warnings are all very similar warnings. They're addressed to those Jewish readers who had come out of Judaism, had come to the edge of salvation in Christ, and were now thinking about turning back and going back to Judaism. Our passage this morning is the fifth and final warning passage in the book of Hebrews. Now, thanks to an abundance of frivolous lawsuits, we have warning labels on every imaginable product we are overly warned and often underly concerned i wrote down a few on a curling iron it says warning for external use only on a hair dryer do not use in the shower On one of those cardboard sunscreens that you put on the dash inside the windshield, it says, Warning, do not drive with sunscreen in place. On a toner cartridge for a laser printer, do not eat toner. On a six-inch wheelbarrow tire, on the edge, it reads, Warning, not intended for highway use. On a disposable coffee cup, it says, Caution, hot beverages are hot. And my favorite, on a motorcycle helmet-mounted rearview mirror, it says, Warning, objects in the mirror are actually behind you. Now, we can thank litigation-happy lawyers for injecting these bits of humor into our daily lives. But you know, the downside of such ludicrous warnings is that they may make us ignore legitimate warnings. And if we ignore certain warnings, we do so to our peril. You know what the most perilous warning in the world is it's not watch for falling rock it's not a tornado warning on channel 12 it's not a hurricane warning if you live in new orleans the most perilous warning in the world is god's warning of eternal judgment for those who reject the gospel And that's the warning that the writer of Hebrews is going to repeat in our passage this morning. And he begins at Mount Sinai in verses 18-21. to Notice verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and so forth. Now, he doesn't name this this mountain in this passage, but it's very obvious to us that he's talking about Mount Sinai. And what happened at Mount Sinai? Well, that's where God gave the law. That's where God gave the Old Covenant. And before we go into this passage, let me have you turn back to Exodus chapter 19 and just kind of refresh your memory on that event. In the third month after Israel came out of Egypt, they came to the wilderness of Sinai in which was Mount Sinai. And God told Moses that on the third day He would come down on Mount Sinai in the presence of all the people and they were to consecrate themselves, wash their garments, set boundaries around the mountain because whoever touched the mountain was to be put to death. And in Exodus chapter 19, we get the flavor of what's going on in verse 16. It says, "...so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Now this is God meeting with His people, and they're trembling. And notice verse 21, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down and warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish." Verse 22, Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Verse 24, Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or He will break forth upon them. Here's God on Mount Sinai. and What's the message to the people? Stay away. And then if you look at chapter twenty of Exodus. And verse 18. It says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Now, there's no evidence of grace here. This is God coming down in all His power, all His righteousness, all His judgment. He's giving the law, and sinful people are standing at a distance. And because of this awesome display of God, the people say, we don't want God to talk to us. Moses, you go talk to Him and come tell us what He says. And so we go back to Sinai and we find the place where the law is given, and it's a fearful and terrifying day. And then come to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. He says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. Now, there are two important phrases to understand this passage. The first is here in verse 18, You have not come. The second is in verse 22, You have come. You might want to underline those phrases so you see the contrast that he's presenting to us here. He first describes this mountain as a mountain that can be touched. Now that's interesting because back in Exodus chapter 19, the people were told that they couldn't touch the mountain. So he's not talking about a mountain that you have permission to touch. What he's talking about is that it was a physical mountain, a material mountain, a mountain that could be touched because it was earthly. When we get to Mount Zion, we're going to find out that it's quite the opposite. It's not a mountain that can be touched. It's a heavenly mountain. And then he goes on to describe this mountain in verse 18 with fire and blackness and gloom and a whirlwind. Notice verse 19 and the blast of a trumpet. Exodus 19 tells us that trumpet got louder and louder and louder. And the sound of words that's God's voice. God's voice sounded on Mount Sinai, accented by thunder. Which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Please don't let God talk to us. And then look at verse 20. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. They put barriers around the mountain. God said, don't come near. If an animal accidentally went on Mount Sinai, it was to be put to death. And the people weren't even to touch it, even associate with it. They were to kill it from a distance. They were to stone it or shoot it through with arrows. This is a holy place. God's holiness had engulfed the mountain at Mount Sinai, and sinful man was to stay away. And what was God doing? He was giving the law. And not only were the people fearful, but so was their leader, verse 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Even Moses, the one to whom God spoke in the burning bush, even the one Moses who went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, was trembling before God. Now, he gives us a quote here of what Moses said. If you go back to the Old Testament, you won't find this quote in the Old Testament. Some people have a problem with that. I have no problem with that. The writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Spirit of God is giving us further information about what happened in that incident, And that's not unusual in Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, As Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Go back to the Old Testament. You don't find any Janus and Jambres. Who are those guys? Probably the magicians of Pharaoh who opposed Moses. But in the New Testament, we're given their names. Did Jesus say it is more blessed to give than to receive? Yes. Which Gospel did He say that in? You won't find it in the Gospels. Paul tells us that in Acts 20.35. And so, after the fact, the Spirit of God sometimes gives us information we didn't have in the initial incidents. And that's what happened here. Not only were the people trembling, but Moses was scared to death. So Moses was afraid. The people were afraid because God came down on Mount Sinai and there was fire and darkness and a thick cloud and gloom and a whirlwind and a trumpet sound and thunder and lightning and smoke and the mountain quaked and there was a threat of death for anyone who came near. It was a frightening scene. And that's why... This comforting statement at the beginning of verse 18 says, You have not come to this mountain. Now, what's it mean when it says, You haven't come to this mountain? Well, obviously, he's not talking about a mountain in Arabia. I mean, I guess you could go over there today and find it somewhere and go to it. What was God doing on Mount Sinai? He was giving the law. He was giving the Old covenant, and so he's saying, "We haven't come to the old covenant. We haven't come to that legal economy that was inaugurated at Sinai. We haven't come to God in that setting. We have come to a different mountain." And he introduces that mountain as Mount Zion in verses 22 to 24. Notice verse 22, "But you have come to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is first mentioned in Scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It was the stronghold of the Jebusites who were enemies of Israel, and David captured it and made it his royal residence. He also made it the religious center of the kingdom by bringing the ark of God there. Later, when Solomon built his temple on the hill to the north of Zion and put the ark there, the name Zion was extended to include this further area and throughout the Old Testament it's a place synonymous with Jerusalem. And over and over again in the Old Testament we're told that Zion is the dwelling place of God. It's a place that was a threat to Israel but became the place where God dwelt and where people came together to worship Him. It's really a picture of grace. God took a place that was an enemy of His, and turned it into a place where He dwelled and people worshipped Him. Sinai was located in one of the dreariest, driest places on earth, a howling desert. Zion is situated in the land flowing with milk and honey. Sinai is ugly and barren. Psalm 48 says, Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. Sinai is a place where God came down for a brief moment. Zion is the place where God dwells forever. Sinai was the place of law. Zion was the place of grace. Sinai was a place of darkness and blackness. Psalm 50, verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. What's He telling us? He's telling us that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't bring us to Mount Sinai. It brings us to Mount Zion, a place of grace. But there's more. He goes on in verse 22 to say, It's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, Hebrews mentions the city more than any other New Testament book. And a city in that day was, was something that spoke of security and, and of safety. And of peace, a city had walls around it. When you were in the city, you were protected. This is the city Abraham was looking for in Hebrews 11:10, whose architect and builder is God. This is the city we read about in chapter 13. Notice verse 14. "For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come." And so we have come to this city in one sense, but in another sense, the full manifestation of that city has not yet happened. You see, we're already citizens of that city. The Bible tells us in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We already enjoy the privileges of citizenship because Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We're citizens there. We enjoy the privileges of there, and yet we are ambassadors now in this world. And then notice, it's the city of the living God. Doesn't get any better than that. This is God's dwelling place, this is God's hometown. And we come to the place where God lives, reminding us that our relationship with God is not about ritual and legalism and, and all of those things. It's about a relationship with Him. We've come to His city, the city of the living God. And then he adds, it's the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the city John saw in Revelation 21 too, Coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And he goes on to say, it's the place where God will dwell with His people and wipe every tear from our eyes. And then he goes on to say in verse 22, and to myriads of angels, verse 23, to the general assembly. Now, that's not a good translation. Uh, The better translation is, to an enormous... That's not a good translation either to an innumerable company of angels in festal gathering. That word general means festal, celebratory. Uh, the NIV translates it, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Deuteronomy thirty-three-two tells us that on Mount Sinai, there were 10,000 holy ones or angels, but the people couldn't get near them. But at Mount Zion, Daniel 7.10 says there are thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads. Or the King James says there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels. And Revelation 5.11 says there are 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands praising God and celebrating. And we get to join in that festal gathering. You see, we have not come to the trembling of Mount Sinai. We have come to the joy of Mount Zion. And then notice as we read on in verse 23, it says, "...and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled or written in heaven." That word firstborn is used nine times in the New Testament. Seven times it's used of Jesus. One time in Hebrews 11:28 it's used of the firstborn in Egypt who died at the first Passover. This time it's used of you and me. Because you might want to mark in your Bible that this word firstborn is plural. It's the church of the firstborns who are enrolled in heaven. And the significance of the firstborn is that he has the right of inheritance. Natural families only have one firstborn. But in God's family, Jesus is the firstborn par excellence. And every one of His children is also a firstborn. We have the right of inheritance. I've got the birthright to all of God's inheritance. And so I not only share in celebration with the angels, I share in the inheritance of God and the fellowship with the church. Who wants to go back to Mount Sinai? We have come to Mount Zion. And I am secure. It says my name is enrolled in heaven. Written in heaven. Remember when Jesus sent the 70 out two by two and they performed miracles and cast out demons and they came back to Jesus and they were all excited and Jesus said in Luke 10, 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In the book of Revelation, I'm told that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. That's security. So when I come to Mount Zion, I come to grace, peace and safety, security, celebration, worship, fellowship, inheritance, but there's more. Look at verse 23. And to God. At Mount Sinai, people couldn't approach God. The boundaries kept them away and the thunder and lightning scared them away. But when we come to Mount Zion, we come to the city of the living God and we come to God Himself in relationship with Him. And notice here, He's called God the Judge of all. You say, well, that's a funny thing to call Him. Why, why isn't He called the Father? Why, why isn't He calling something we can relate to a little better? I think He calls Him the Judge of all because He wants us to know that God hasn't changed. God is the same God who was on Mount Sinai. He's the same God you come to on Mount Zion. God hasn't changed. What God has done is changed you. That's evident in the next phrase. Look at the next phrase in verse 23. It says, "Into the spirits of the righteous made perfect." There are people in heaven who are righteous and perfect. Now, what happened to them? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, there are none righteous, no, not one. Now we see people in Mount Zion who are righteous and made perfect. How did that happen? Look at verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, people are made righteous and perfect so that they're prepared for heaven. Now, who's he talking about here when he talks about the spirits of the righteous made perfect? Well, I think he's talking about the Old Testament saints. You see, when I come to faith in Jesus Christ, when I come to Mount Zion, I become one with the Old Testament saints. I'm in the same place, the same throng with Abraham and Moses and Elijah and Daniel and David. We're all pals in the same thing. See, I know them a lot better than they know me, but we're in the same congregation. We're in the same place. We have the same privileges. What's interesting is that they really had to wait a long time to get their perfection. They had to wait for you and me. They had to wait for Jesus Christ to come and bring the new covenant before they were made perfect. If you turn back a page, we read that at the end of chapter 11, if you remember. Look at verse 39 of chapter 11. And all these, the Old Testament believers having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. You see, we will spend eternity together. And then come back to verse 24 of chapter 12. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. It's going to be great to rub elbows with Old Testament saints. But far greater will be the presence of Jesus. It was in coming to Him by faith that I have access to Mount Zion. He is the mediator of this new covenant relationship that I have with God. And He is the centerpiece of all eternity. And then he adds into the sprinkled blood. And that would speak to Jewish listeners because that was part of the sacrifice to sprinkle the blood. But he's talking here about the blood of Jesus Christ that brings us atonement, that pays for our sins forever. And then notice the end of verse 24. And to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, what's that mean? Well, some people say that means that, Abel, you know, remember, Abel gave. The sacrifice of an animal, and Cain gave the produce of the ground, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice. And so some people say, you know, Abel gave a good sacrifice and it was accepted, but the sacrifice of Jesus far outweighs that of Abel. And while that's true, I don't think that's what he's talking about here, because he says here in verse 24 that the blood speaks. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10, God told Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood was crying for vengeance and justice. Jesus' blood is crying for forgiveness and mercy. We have a greater sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His blood sprinkled on us cleanses our sin forever. And His blood continues to call out to God for our forgiveness and mercy. So there are two locations, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. The question is, where are you living? Are you settled in at Mount Sinai with God thundering out of heaven, trying to obey the law and dealing with a trembling, intimidating God? Or have you come to Mount Zion by faith in Jesus Christ and experienced the blessings there? You see, He says you've left Mount Sinai and you've come to Mount Zion. I heard about a lady who went to the police station. Her name was Mrs. Jones and she went with her neighbor, Samantha, to report that her husband was missing. The policeman said, well, Mrs. Jones, give me a full description of your husband. She said, well, he's 35 years old, has beautiful wavy hair, deep olive complexion, crystal clear blue eyes. He's got an athletic build. He's soft-spoken and very romantic. Wait a minute, said Samantha. Your husband's 48 years old, fat, bald. He has a big mouth and doesn't have a romantic bone in his body. Mrs. Jones said, okay, okay, but who wants him back? Well, that's the point of this passage. You have left the gloom of Mount Sinai under the law. And you have come to the joy of Mount Zion under grace. Why would you want to go back there? You see, you've got to ask yourself the question this morning, am I trying to climb up Mount Sinai by works? Amidst the thunder and the lightning and the command that says, stay away. Or have I come by faith to Jesus Christ? Have I accepted the sacrifice He made? And am I enjoying the blessings of Mount Zion? See, there are only two locations to choose from. After a good real estate agent showed you two properties, he would get back in the car and he would warn you or advise you he would say, did you notice the floor joists in that first place? Did you see the mold on the wall in that first house? That's not a very good neighborhood. Well, that's what the writer does here. He presents these two properties and then he gives us a warning in verses 25 to 27. Notice verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. Don't refuse Him. Don't come to Mount Zion and respond like the people did at Mount Sinai. Verse 19 says, those who heard beg that no further word be spoken to them. Don't come to Mount Mount Sinai. The second one. Don't come to Mount Zion and refuse God. Now, how do you refuse God? What's interesting is you don't have to say no to refuse God. In fact, this word refuse is used by Jesus in Luke chapter 14 when He tells the the parable of the man who gave a big dinner invited many people. And then at the dinner hour, they made excuses. One of them said, I I bought some land and I've got to go look at it. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I haven't tried them out. Another said, I just got married. I, I can't make it. And the Master told His servant to go out in the highways and go along the hedges and compel the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame to come. For none of those who were invited and made excuses will taste my dinner. You see, you don't have to say no to refuse the voice of God. You just have to make excuses. You just have to say, I'm busy. Some other time, I've got other things to worry about. See, His warning is, don't refuse Him. Why not? He gives us three reasons. The first is, He didn't just speak then, He's speaking now. Notice verse 25 again. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. Present tense. He's speaking right now. In fact, that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. He starts out the book telling us uh, that the prophets used to speak a long time ago, or God used to speak through the prophets. Now He's speaking to us how? In His Son. God didn't just speak to us on Mount Sinai. He's continuing to speak to us today. And then the second reason. If they didn't escape, neither will you. Look at verse 25 again. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. If they couldn't escape when they rejected God when He spoke on earth in thunder, you're not going to escape from God who speaks to you from heaven in the person of His Son. God's invitation in the Gospel to forgive all your sins and to give you eternal life is the greatest invitation in the world. I mean, what more could God do than to give His only Son to shed His innocent blood in your place so that you might have life, so that He might pay for your sins. But since the Gospel is the greatest privilege imaginable, to refuse the Gospel is the greatest sin imaginable. And then the third reason. God's voice shook the earth then and He's not finished. Look at verse 28. And His voice shook the earth then, but now He has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven." At Mount Sinai, God shook the earth, but in a future day, He's going to shake the earth and the heavens. That's a quote from Haggai 2:6. Say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, he gives us a commentary in verse 27. He says, "This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. What will be shaken? created things, in other words, everything you see will be shaken. God's voice shook Sinai, but that's nothing compared to what He's going to do. You know, we we had an earthquake off the coast of Sumatra that created a tsunami that killed 150,000 people. That's nothing compared to what God's going to do in a future day. You see, this universe is not simply going to feel some tremors. The Bible tells us it's going to be completely wiped out and removed. 2 Peter 3.10 says, "...the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up." Revelation 20.11 says, "...and I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat upon it from whose presence... Earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. It's all going to be gone. You say, well, what's going to remain? Well, look at verse 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Everything you see is going to be shaken. It's going to be taken away. This physical earth, the physical heavens, all taken away. What's going to remain? The kingdom. And if you notice the word therefore, he's referring back to what he just said. And so when he's talking about the kingdom, he's referring to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, which Revelation 21 says will come down out of heaven and be the dwelling of God on this earth during the kingdom. Which brings us to the exhortation in verses 28 and 29. Notice verse 28 again. Therefore, Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us... And then he tells us three things that we need to do. Three exhortations. Number one, be grateful. He says, let us show gratitude. Now notice in verse 28, he says, since we what? Receive a kingdom. We receive a kingdom, why? Because it's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. You have no business being in Mount Zion. But God has given it to you as a gift. The gift of eternal life in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so you ought to be grateful. Thank you ought to be on your lips continually as you talk to God. Second exhortation. Offer service to God. Notice verse 28 again. He says, "...let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service." We offer our service. In other words, our service is really a sacrifice. It's an offering that we give to God. You see, you're not paying for anything when you serve God. You are simply saying thank you by offering your service to Him. And he says here, you're to offer it as an acceptable service. How do we know it's acceptable? Well, the same word service is used in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 where Paul tells us to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What makes my service acceptable? It's when I present myself to Him. You see, Jesus gave Himself for me And my response to that gift is that I ought to give myself back to Him. Service always begins by giving myself. And then the third exhortation. Fear God. Look at verse 28. Offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. I have to say that I think this is a concept that we have lost in the church today. We err on the side of being too chummy and casual with God. We rarely err on the side of reverence and awe. And that's a balance we need to find in our lives. Yes, Hebrews chapter four, fifteen says we have a sympathetic high priest, and we are to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in time of need. But the other side of that equation is verse twenty-nine where it says, Our God is a consuming fire. That's pretty awesome. What's a consuming fire do? Consumes. And He's got a lot more consuming that He's going to do in the future. Now, some people like to conclude that the God of the Old Testament was a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy. It doesn't work that way. He's one and the same God. You see, if you notice verse 29, it says, Our God is a consuming fire. He hasn't changed. He still feels the same way about sin today as He did at Mount Sinai. What has changed is that Jesus Christ has taken our sin and died in our place. And God can forgive us on the basis of that great sacrifice. In fact, if you notice verse 25, it calls this concept a warning for those who won't believe. In verse 26, it's called a promise for those who do believe. You see, it doesn't bother me that God's going to burn up this earth. I'm not really interested in this earth. It doesn't bother me that God's going to burn up the heavens that I see because the Bible promises that God is going to make what? A new heaven and a new earth. You see, whether this concept is a warning to you or a promise to you depends on which kingdom you're a part of. It depends on which mountain you're you are located on. If you've come all the way to the edge of faith in Christ and you've never made a commitment to Him, don't go back to Mount Sinai. If you think it was bad then, the world hasn't seen damnation like you'll receive if you're stuck there when Jesus comes back. The choice is yours. You can come to God at Mount Zion by trusting Jesus Christ and enjoy grace, peace and safety, worship, inheritance, fellowship with the church, with Old Testament saints, with God, with Jesus, full forgiveness and cleansing from sin. Or you can try to climb up Mount Sinai and face God in the darkness and the gloom and the judgment of a coming day. God is still speaking to you today. And the message is clear through Jesus Christ. That message is come. And the Holy Spirit warns you in this passage, don't refuse Him. I'm going to have the praise team come back and we're going to sing in closing today that chorus, In Christ Alone. It tells us that we're standing in Him and the question I want you to ask yourself as we stand and close together is where am I standing today? Am I standing on Mount Sinai or have I come in faith to Mount Zion? Let's